The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. From the Urzats. Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, Southern Outpost, here in Sultry, Savannah. This is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and, yes, Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, coming at you from, geez, I don't know, some room in the haunted mansion. Uh, the same room where I checked, from which I checked in last time. This time, however, there are some books piled on the mantle and on the half dis, uh, d- dismantled, I guess, bookcases that are in process of being restored, cords and uh, boxes and mishmash of stuff and miscellaneous items and ephemera are around me, but the ho- the house is somewhat more organized than it was the last time I spoke with you. You know, the haunted mansion is is in shambles, Le- fewer shambles than before, but still shambolic, as it were. My mood is uh, tenuous. I am homesick. My wife is homesick. We are struggling. Is that the right word? Maybe. Maybe that might be too strong a word, but I don't think it is. I think it's about the correct word. Today is her birthday. We celebrated with some Thai food that we took out because we do not have a functioning kitchen. Um, Or let's say a barely functioning kitchen. A ersatz kitchen. I will be repeating that word perhaps throughout because everything feels somewhat ersatz at the moment by the seat of our pants, hastily thrown together, constructed with not enough care or thought. It is 
you probably just heard that uh, it is a difficult time. And yet, there are moments of great beauty. There are moments when strolling the sultry Savannah streets where you go, oh, this is really lovely. Uh, I had lunch with a acquaintance slash old friend today in Savannah at a taco place. I had been, I've had a hankering for tacos. Didn't know you could get decent tacos in Savannah. Well, it turns out you can. They're, they were pretty good. And it was the first time that I felt like, oh, well, maybe this is okay. The fact of the matter is I don't know that it's okay. And it still very much doesn't feel like it's okay. Um, every morning I am plagued with the thought, what did I do? Now, that being said, the fact of the matter is, and I'm being very candid with you right now, the fact of the matter is, had we not sold our house in the wilds of Connecticut, chances are very good that we would have lost that house. Um, not immediately, but fairly soon. We would have put ourselves in some jeopardy financially. We are in less jeopardy now. It doesn't mean we had to move to Georgia, for God's sake. I mean, I don't know what the hell we were thinking there, other than, you know, seemed like a nice city. And we, you know, we were kind of tired of country living. Maybe we would try city living. Um, and it was funny because Martha said the other day, everything feels so dirty. I'm like, we literally lived in the woods. We were surrounded by dirt at all times. And she said, but that was clean dirt. And I knew exactly what she meant because I had had the exact same thought without verbalizing it to her. I have found my copy of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's been a couple of weeks since we, uh, since I've read to you and with you. Um, Victor Frankenstein has just gotten married. The marriage took all of, uh, let me, I'm just counting the words here. Well, I'm two sentences, literally two sentences to describe the marriage. The wedding itself is described in essentially five words, uh, which are, after the ceremony was performed, comma, and then he, she goes on to describe a little party, and then they talk about how Elizabeth and Victor Frankenstein go to Lake Como, and the that paragraph, the, 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 the single paragraph that describes the wedding day, the day was fair, the wind favorable, all smiled on our nuptial embarkation. Those were the last moments of my life during which I enjoyed the feeling of happiness. Well, when I last recorded, uh, as I was leaving the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, it did feel like perhaps I too was, enjoy- was experiencing the last moments of my life during which I enjoyed the feeling of happiness, obviously. I'm exaggerating. But by how much? I don't know. All right, so we continue here on Obscure Volume 3, Chapter 5. We passed rapidly along 
The sun was hot, but we were sheltered from its rays by a kind of canopy, while we enjoyed the beauty of the scene, sometimes on one side of the lake where we saw Mont Salève, the pleasant banks of Montalegre, and at a distance, surmounting all, the beautiful Mont Blanc, and the assemblage of snowy mountains that in vain endeavor to emulate her. Sometimes coasting the opposite banks, we saw the mighty Jura opposing its dark side to the ambition that would quit its native country, and an almost insurmountable barrier to the invader who should wish to enslave it. Well, we know that nothing is insurmountable to Big Buddy. He could probably leap the mighty Jura in a single bound if he so wanted. But I'm reminded to consider these descriptive paragraphs because, you know, normally the eye just kind of passes over them. My eye just kind of passes over them. But it's important, I think, to remember that with Shelley, they mean something. I mean, with all writers, they mean something. I mean, don't, don't be an idiot, Michael. But I am an idiot, as evidenced by my living situation. But my point is, she, Shelley, uses scenery as as plot points almost as as foreshadowing as moments of um inner turmoil to describe inner turmoil uh, show you the opposing sides of nature she's just uh, man's nature she's describing the opposing sides of the scenery that they're passing through i took the hand of elizabeth and this is uh, frankenstein saying you are sour sorrowful my love ah if you knew what I have suffered, <laughs> oh my God, here he goes. God, God, what a dickhead he is. Okay, so, I mean, I, I, I'm just annoyed because literally he says, you are sorrowful, my love, okay? So he's saying like, um, I can see that you're sad, but just wait till you hear what I've been through. I mean, just such a dickish, mansplainish move. All right, but I'll go back. You are sorrowful, and remember, he has vowed to tell her after they've been married what he did. And she was like, yeah, that's cool. I guess I'll marry you anyway. You know, I guess I'll marry you knowing you have some hideous secret that is going to make me repulsed by you. But let's get married. I took the hand of Elizabeth. You are sorrowful, my love. Ah, if you knew what I have suffered and what I may yet endure, you would endeavor to let me taste the quiet and freedom from despair that this one day at least permits me to enjoy. So he's saying, hey, you're sad, snap out of it. Meanwhile, what has she been through on his behalf? You know, he has, first of all, he left, right, for years. He went to uh, Ingolstadt. He studied. He was out of touch. He, then when he finally, and, and then when he finally comes back, he's like morose. He's despondent. He's depressed. He's practically suicidal. He's catatonic. Then he leaves again. Then he gets arrested for murder. Meanwhile, she stands by his side, right? And she writes him this letter that's basically like, hey, I just want you to be happy. Like, you know, whatever else is happening in this world. Like, don't worry about me. I just want you to be happy. Then she has one minute of uh, having like a little frowny face and he's like, snap out of it. I'm like, dude, I, I mean, I would leave him. He is such a dick. God. And he's, and, and he's like, snap out of it because this is my one day to be happy. So don't ruin it for me. Don't ruin it for me, Elizabeth. You are ruining everything. 
So does she say that? She said, no. She says, be happy, my dear Victor, replied Elizabeth. There is, I hope, nothing to distress you. And be assured that if a lively joy is not painted in my face, my heart is contented. Something whispers to me not to depend too much on the prospect that is opened before us. But I will, because you're about to die, so that might be a reason not to depend on it. But I will not listen to such a sinister voice. Observe how fast we move along, and how the clouds, yes, you are moving along fast, and how the clouds, which sometimes obscure, and sometimes rise above the dome of Mont Blanc, Render this scene of beauty still more interesting. Look also at the innumerable fish that are swimming in the clear waters, where we can distinguish every pebble that lies at the bottom. What a divine day! How happy and serene all nature appears. Thus Elizabeth endeavored to divert her thoughts and mine from all reflection upon melancholy subjects, but her temper was fluctuating. Joy for a few instants shone in her eyes, but it continually gave place to distraction and reverie. I mean, I you know, I guess the thought is, like some part of her knows she's going to die, right? Some part of her is like, you know, don't get too attached to feeling discontented. Don't get too attached to the fact that you finally got your man. You finally married your cousin slash brother slash stranger to you by blood. And, you know, like all should be well in the world. But the problem is, Elizabeth, you're about to die. So that sucks. You know, she doesn't, she can't quite put her finger on like what exactly is going to happen. But she's having some sort of premonition of terrible events about to unfold. We know that premonition will come true with luck. Knock on wood, it will come true. The sun sank lower in the heavens. We passed the river Drance and observed its path through the chasms of the higher and the glens of the lower hills. The Alps here come closer to the lake, and we approached the amphitheater of mountains which forms its eastern boundary. The spire of Evian shone under the woods that surrounded it, and the range of mountain above mountain by which it was overhung. Not for nothing, guys. But don't the Alps sound great? I mean, the Alps sound amazing. If there's one thing this book does extremely well is make me pine for the Alps. Uh, I would love to see them. I've never been to Switzerland. I've never seen the Alps, and they just sound magnificent. All those peaks and crags and snowy tops and clean air and clear water and all of that just sounds absolutely gorgeous. I guess, you know, I don't know how much time she spent outside of Geneva with uh, Percy Bissy Shelley and Lord Byron, but it does sound absolutely lovely. So let's pause for a moment or two and, you know, just imagine ourselves traipsing along the Swiss Alps, you know, yodeling and eating Toblerone and doing what we're going to do up there. And we'll be back in a moment on Obscure.
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Back on Obscure, we have premonitions of death uh, and, you know, just, just cannot wait. My entire being is a quiver with waiting for Liz, poor Elizabeth, to be murdered at the hands of the big buddy. Um, you know, not because I've got anything against Liz. I mean, she's terrific, but just because I, I just need that to happen. So let's keep going. You know, they're, they're descri- you know, she's describing the Alps, you know, the wind which had hitherto carried us along with amazing rapidity, sunk at sunset to a light breeze. The soft air just ruffled the water and caused a pleasant motion among the trees as we approached the shore, from which it wafted the most delightful scent of flowers and hay. The sun sunk beneath the horizon as we landed, and as I touched the shore, I felt those cares and fears revive, which soon were to clasp me and cling to me forever. So they're going along, they're on the water, and all is well on the water. And this seems to be somewhat thematic. I'm thinking now about his time with Clerval. Everything was good when they were on the Rhine or Rhone or wherever they were. And then I feel like when he went to to Ingolstadt for the first time, I think things were pretty cool. But then when he touches land here, that's when everything goes to pot. And, you know, it's terrible because, look, Kevin Costner proved to all of us that we cannot live in a water world, right? It just can't happen. You know, you want to. You want to just be sort of floating along in a kind of embryonic sack and just enjoying the world uh, in, in, in a kind of amniotic, fluid, fluid situation. But look, you can't do it. At a certain point, you got to touch land. And when we touch land, that is when the world materializes, so to speak. Because if we're talking about creators, God created Adam from the dirt. Didn't he? Didn't he? 
No. He just sort of said, all right, here's Adam. Here you go. Somebody created somebody from dirt. I mean, Eve was from the rib. I thought Adam was from dirt. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I'm scratching. Uh, but anyway, that seems to be the end of chapter five. You know, calmness has been replaced by fear, thank goodness. And now let us continue with chapter six. It was eight o'clock when we landed. I don't care what time it was. It's a silly thing to say it was eight o'clock when, when we landed. Who cares what time it was? That's a dumb way to start a paragraph. Certainly a dumb way to start a, para- uh, a chapter. We walked for a short time on the shore, enjoying the transitory light, and then retired to the inn and contemplated the lovely scene of waters, woods, and mountains, obscured in darkness, yet still displaying their black outlines. The wind, which had fallen in the south, now rose with great violence in the west. So, you know, this is that whole thing of the, the, the natural world representing the inner world. And his, his fears have now returned. The wind is rising with violence. The moon had reached her summit in the heavens and was beginning to descend, right? Light is going out. Things are going to get terrible. The clouds swept across it swifter than the flight of the vulture, that carrion bird who eats from the flesh of the dead and dimmed her rays while the lake reflected the scene of the busy heavens, rendered still busier by the restless waves that were beginning to rise. Violence is coming. The earth is trembling and making way for the big buddy to come and do his worst. Suddenly, as if as if uh, in a Snoopy cartoon, a heavy storm of rain descended. I don't know why I immediately think of Snoopy, but I'm thinking of him as the World War I ace, and it seems to me there was always some sort of rain. I, I could be totally wrong about that. Maybe just one cartoon that was rain. But I guess I was thinking of Snoopy because, you know, first of all, everybody likes Snoopy, you know, and what are you going to do? Not think about Snoopy? No, you're going to think about Snoopy. But uh, Snoopy's world is entirely internal, right? He has this internal imagine, these entire internal imaginings. And in my head, the weather was reflecting what was going on with his imaginary life. I don't know. I had been calm during the day, but so soon as night obscured the shapes of objects. A thousand fears arose in my mind. Seems like there's really just one fear. You know? Seems like there's really one overriding fear for Victor Frankenstein. Like you and me, listener, um, we've got, you know, several fears. We've got COVID. We've got climate change. We've got the states of our tenuous democracy. I don't feel like Victor Frankenstein really has to worry about that stuff so much as he does just really the one thing, which is the eight-foot-tall humanoid creature who has vowed to destroy him on his wedding night. That seems to me to be probably the one fear that he needs to put foremost in his mind. I was anxious and watchful while my right hand grasped a pistol which was hidden 
in my bosom. Hmm. I've never heard of a guy hiding anything in his bosom. You know, you hear about you, know, you hear about like uh, ladies doing that sometimes. You know, the sassy waitress or something, or uh, the old grandma. You know, with 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 uh, you know somebody gives her something, she sticks it in her brazier. Never heard of nobody sticking no pistol in no brazier. Never heard of that. Heard of that, let alone a fella. Every sound terrified me, but I resolved that I would sell my life dearly and not shrink from the conflict until my own life, or that of my adversary, was extinguished. Elizabeth observed my agitation for some time in timid and fearful silence. But there was something in my glance which communicated terror to her. In trembling, she asked, What is it that agitates you, my dear Victor? What is it you fear? Oh, peace, peace, my love, replied I. This night and all will be safe, but this night is dreadful. Very dreadful. Yes, it is dreadful. And the peace that you're looking for this night is probably not going to come for the reasons that we have stated uh, in the previous 200 pages. I passed an hour in this state of mind when suddenly I reflected how fearful the combat which I momentarily expected would be to my wife, and I earnestly entreated her to retire, resolving not to join her until I had obtained some knowledge as to the situation of my enemy. So he's saying, you know, hey, Liz, do me a favor. Go take a powder, you know, go back to the inn, hang out, maybe order some wings or something. I'm going to scope out the situation here, do a little recon, try to get a little tactical advantage over the big buddy. But of course, she has no, you know, she doesn't, she still doesn't know what's up with him. She still has no idea. And it seems to me like, okay, you went through the marriage ceremony, right? And then the next thing out of your mouth would be like, okay, tell me what you're going to tell me so we can get this behind us. But, you know, she sucks. She left me, and I continued some time walking up and down the passages of the house and inspecting every corner that might afford a retreat to my adversary. But I discovered no trace of him and was beginning to conjecture that some fortunate chance had intervened to prevent the execution of his menaces when suddenly I heard a shrill and dreadful scream. I mean, good. <laughs> He's so stupid. He's so stupid. I mean, this really is a huge gaping plot hole. I can't get past it. I can't get past that he's got it in his head after the big buddy killed William, after the big buddy killed Clerval, after the big buddy has never come, has never uh, tried to physically harm him, even though he could have torn him limb from limb. He still thinks that he's the object of the big buddy's, of big buddy's wrath. He still thinks that. He, like it never occurred to him that he's coming for Elizabeth. Why is he so stupid? It came from the room into which Elizabeth had retired. No, duh. As I heard it, the whole truth rushed into my mind. My arms dropped. The motion of every muscle and fiber was suspended. I could feel the blood trickling 
in my veins and tingling in the extremities of my limbs. This state lasted but for an instant. The scream was repeated, and I rushed into her room. All right. I mean, finally, we got a little action here, right? What's he going to find? Is she dead already? Is she strangled? Has her head been torn from her shoulders? Has her torso been shorn from her limbs? We don't know. I mean, part of me just wants to stop and be like, let's find out, you know, you know and leave you in suspense. You know, now that something has finally happened, um, you know, part of me feels like, well, hell, you know, let's just leave it there. But now, unfortunately, I also want to know, and God damn it, I don't have the patience, having come this far, to not see what has happened. So I'll just do the next paragraph. We'll see. Great God, why did I not then expire? Right, why didn't I die right then? Why am I here to relate the destruction of the best hope in the purest creature of earth? She was there, lifeless and inanimate, thrown across the bed, her head hanging down, and her pale and distorted features half covered by her hair. Everywhere I turn, I see the same figure, her bloodless arms and relaxed form flung by the murderer on its bridal bier. Could I behold this and live? Alas, life is obstinate and clings closest where it is most hated. For a moment only did I lose recollection. I fell senseless on the ground. God damn it. I wanted her to die. I was excited for her to die. And now she's dead. And I feel really bad about it. I feel really bad about it. Note again, the action all happened off stage, right? Note again, the murder scene happened off stage. We heard a scream. He comes in. She's dead. Happened with William. Uh, He stumbled out. You know, William was discovered. It happened with Clerval. Clerval was discovered. And now it's happened with poor Elizabeth. And of course, she has to be referred to from this point on, as we have been anyway, referring to her as poor Elizabeth. And so she's dead. You know, all of this lead up and the murder scene, it's, you know, all we know is she was kind of tossed aside. Now she's hanging. Her head is half off the bed in my head and in my imaginings. You know, her hair is sort of half covering her face. Her arms are lifeless and bloodless. And she's dead. The purest creature ever to walk the earth. Dead. All innocence, dead, you know? And he didn't see it coming because he's so stupid. But yeah, I mean, I'm bummed. I'm bummed. I don't want, I I didn't want to feel. I didn't want to care. But I feel bad for poor Elizabeth. You know? Even though she was just a, she was such a namby-pamby character, but I still feel bad. That's a good line, though. Life is obstinate and clings closest where it is most hated. I don't even know if I agree with that, but I like it because it seems to me life clings everywhere. You know, life clings where it is loved. It clings where it is hated. It clings where we are indifferent to it. I'm looking out the window of the Savannah mansion here, the Zats. Outpost of the Jill, Southern Outpost of the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, and there are leaves sort of tingling in the southern breeze. That is life, too. Those leaves clinging to their branches, the branches 
clinging to the trunk, the roots clinging for purchase under the ground, running under my haunted mansion, trying to displace me from my home, though I have already displaced myself. Squash has entered the room and is curled up next to me. He's tired. His eyes are closed. This trip has been relatively okay for the animals. Um, they are happy wherever we are, even if we are not entirely sure that we are happy. But he breathes deeply, clinging to life here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, the Erzatz, Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, Southern Outpost. Um, we'll stop there, of course. <sighs> we'll reflect on poor Elizabeth. We'll feel bad for poor Elizabeth. My dear wife, Martha, is attempting to make some poke. I don't think she's ever made poke before. Um, so I'm going to help her with that. And we'll leave it there. And we'll come back next week on another. And look, there's only one possible adjective for this episode on another Erzatz episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedgren. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public in in addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced, too, I might add. <laughs>